Good morning, everyone. We will go ahead and begin right on the dot because there is quite a bit to cover. Hopefully, we'll have five or, five or ten minutes at the end for any questions that you may have. But when we dismiss from here, know that there are some business cards up in the front if you want to get in touch with me later. If you want the slides, uh, it says on the blurb that we're asked to write months and months prior to this happening that I would have the handouts for you, but trees, so I did not do that. But if you want them, by all means, I will email them to you. I can send you the PowerPoints and even the training sessions that we're going to talk about. I can send you the, the script and everything for all of that. Just grab a, a card. You can email me or call me, and I'll get you whatever information that you need. Since these are recorded, we're asked to introduce ourselves. Those of you who may not know me, I'm Tiffany Dahlman, and I'm the pulpit minister at Courtyard Church of Christ in North Carolina, right there in the center of the state. I'm also the program director for the Bachelor of Science in Christian Service and Formation degree through ACU Dallas. We have some other ACUD folks in here. So if you're interested in getting, oh yes, speak up. Absolutely. So if you're interested in a bachelor's degree, you can let me know, but we will move on to what we are talking about today, homiletics, preaching an open pulpit. And just to get some bearings about who is in the room, do we have any preachers here? Church leaders, elders, church leadership, okay, and the rest members, lay members in the, the church. So this will pertain to everyone. The questions that come up, the effect of having an open pulpit affects the entire church. Maybe different questions, different concerns, different anxieties or even excitements, but it does affect the entire congregation. We titled this Step Outside the Box, the box being your pulpit, your podium, your music stand, your trendy round table and coffee table, whatever it is you have in your church. But stepping out of this space as the vocational primary pulpit minister so that other people can move into it. Sometimes it's called a shared pulpit, an open pulpit. We're all talking about the same thing, regardless of what you call it. And there are benefits to this, and of course there are some concerns to this as well. So what is it? What are we talking about when we say an open pulpit? Sometimes we think we're talking about substitute preaching. So if you're the preacher, I hope your preacher takes a vacation. You get a couple of weeks a year to, to go. Uh, maybe they're sick one day and you have to have a substitute preacher come in. That elder gets the phone call that morning, hey, we need you to pinch it and preach. That's not really what we're talking about. We're not talking about substitute preaching. We're talking about shifting the entire culture of the church into something different. Judah, can you put up the definition? So for this course, what we're talking about in this context is a church culture that is radically hospitable to the word of God through the diverse voices within the congregation, preaching in a rotating or regular basis, empowered by the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Now that's kind of a complex definition, but I want you to know we're not just talking about substitute preaching, because that happens everywhere. We're talking about changing the pulpit culture of your church to one that is hospitable to many, many, many more voices. And usually when this is done in a congregation, they're the voices within that local congregation. Sometimes you may bring in a guest 
preacher here and there, and I do that, Sherelle's congregation does that, but primarily we're talking about opening the space to the members of the church. Right? Judah, go ahead. And this does not mean firing your preacher. <laughs> I have had people message me, you know, hey, we just don't know that we can afford a preacher anymore. We'd like to move to that. Like, sometimes that has to happen, but don't just go to your preacher the next day and say, hey, you're out. We're going to start letting everybody mm -hmm. preach. There's a, a right way to do this, a wrong way to do this, an unethical way to do this. Um, and, and really, your pulpit paid vocational minister is still doing stuff with an open pulpit, still doing a lot. You still need him or her around. Uh, you have a need for them. In most churches I know of that have an open pulpit or a shared pulpit, there remains a paid either bivocational or vocational pulpit minister. And that individual is still needed in that space. I have consulted a few churches the past year or two who, uh, you know, churches have gotten smaller. Some of them haven't necessarily recovered from COVID and they don't have a, a pulpit minister and, or they've been looking. In a couple cases, they were looking desperately for a hired pulpit minister and couldn't find the right fit, couldn't find someone to work bivocationally, whatever the reason. And I said, hey, have you thought about an open pulpit culture for your church? It can be a really good option in those situations, but it can also be a beautiful option in traditional churches where you have a full-time vocational preacher. Next. Why? Why would we do that? Say you have a fantastic preacher. Candace is your preacher, like at Brookline. Why in the world would we want to open up the pulpit to other people? Well, there's a precedent for it, Judah. Many examples, but let's take the Corinthian church. A word from the Lord, and these are verbal gifts, whether you want to call them exhortation, preaching, prophecy, whatever we're going to call them. But they're described as doing four things, strengthening, encouraging, instructing, and comforting the church. So here are some purposes of the spoken word in a congregational context. And here when Paul's speaking to the church in Corinth, there's more than one person doing this. So many people that it's a problem, and he's trying to bring some structure into the situation. And in other churches, we see Peter and Paul addressing churches about the apostles and the evangelists. These are plural. They're navigating this many people who are speaking in the church. There's a biblical precedent, as restorationists folk, we tend to care about that sort of thing. There's a New Testament precedent for a variety of voices speaking in the church. Judah. And Peter comes right out and says that each person, person should use the gift that they have been given. I, I am guilty of this myself, but when we think about spiritual gifts in the church, and that's really a whole other class as well, talking about spiritual gifts and are there only 13 and which ones and how do you know and all of that. Let's just assume that when we are covered in Christ and receive the spirit, we are given something mysterious and beautiful to be used in partnership in the kingdom of God. When we think about those people who are gifted in worship, in song, think about your congregation. You probably think of more than one person, whether your church is 30 or 3,000. When you think of the gifts of leadership, we believe in a plurality of leaders, 
in our congregation. When you think about gifts of service or hospitality, even imagination or creativity, we tend to think of more than one person. But when we say, who has the gift of preaching in your church? Most people see their pulpit minister. That's our preacher. But who's to say they're the only one? Even in a church of 30, Courtyard's got 70 to 80, 5,000, there's probably more than one person in there with a gift of preaching. Our minds just aren't necessarily trained to think that way in plurality of gifting when it comes to exhortation in those gifts. But Peter's telling the churches, use the gift that you've been given. Another really important reason to do this, I think, to move to that culture of an open pulpit, is that it helps us experience the depth and the breadth of God in a way that we otherwise would not. And I want to give a couple examples here. Uh, one that, that we as Pepperdine people may be familiar with would be the sermon that Sarah Barton preached on David and Bathsheba a few years ago. Most of us have heard a sermon about David and Bathsheba, probably delivered to us through a particular lens, a particular worldview. Not a bad one, that white, middle-aged, male, American view. It's not wrong, but that's the lens we've heard it. So then Sarah preaches a sermon on the same pericope of scripture from the lens of a woman of a certain age. She's a good friend, I won't call out her age, but white American woman. And in that sermon, she brings in the experience of women from Uganda. So now we're hearing the same story from a very different lens, a very different worldview, a very different perspective, and it upsets some people. And it's not intended to be in competition with another lens, but what that can do is open the horizon of the biblical narrative. Well, now we're seeing it with more colors. Now we're seeing it with more depth. And this is really important because the congregations where you serve are on a spiritual journey as a collective and as individuals. If you've spent any time in spiritual direction, spiritual formation, you may have heard that people tend to identify to God or to Christ in one of four ways. I think Dortley Butler Bath, Bass wrote a book, uh, I can't even remember, but she, she came up with six ways, but we're going to go with the traditional four. That people tend to identify with God most easily, their most um, uh, natural nature connects to God as either their Lord, their Savior, their teacher, or their what? Do you know? Friend. Those are the four traditional ones. Lord, Savior, Teacher, Friend. This applies to everybody. All of those are correct. All of those are in the Bible. They're all good. And everybody has a certain tendency. That includes your preacher. Your preacher naturally identifies with God as, say, Savior. So if your preacher knows God the most intimately, connects with God most intimately as Savior, your congregation is getting a heavy dose of sermons about crucifixion, about sin, the passion narratives, the end of the Gospels, about mercy. That's the direction many of these sermons are coming from. Is that helping the person in your congregation who identifies with God as their Lord? 
Where's the sermons on the awe and the reverence of God, the lordship of God, holiness? What about your congregants who are identifying with God as their friend, who wants to walk and talk with Jesus in the garden as good friends shouldn't do? Where's those sermons? Are they getting fed? And people, as well as congregations, can plateau. And in spiritual direction, what we encourage people to do is if they're feeling a spiritual plateau is to identify whether they identify with God most easily as Lord, Savior, Teacher, or Friend, and then change it up. Say, here's your homework. Say, you identify with God most strongly as your Lord. Therefore, after 20 years, you've got a very fear-based faith. There's good in that, but it's gone a little crazy. So what I want you to do now is take 30 days and pray to God as your friend. And it's going to feel blasphemous, and it's going to feel weird, and you're not going to like it, but it can knock people out of that spiritual plateau because they're experiencing God in a new way that they haven't before. Opening the pulpit is a dish in the meal that does the same thing. Prayer is another dish in the meal, but suddenly they're hearing sermons from a different lens, a different experience with God, a different culture even. At a courtyard, we're in the middle of a series on the parables. We've been in it for a while. And we, uh, I, I made a spreadsheet of all the parables we were going to do. I asked the people who'd been through training to sign up for one of those parables they might want to preach. We'll get into how that works here in a minute. And uh, we realized some of them wanted to do the same one. We thought, well, that's great. So we had four of those Sundays where we invited three of them to preach at the same time. Not the same time. We'd have a Corinthian situation going on there, but the same Sunday, one right after another. And to just do five to seven minutes, little tiny homilies. So one week, for example, it was a parable of the tenants where they all show up to work, some show up later, everybody gets paid the same in the end. And we had a 19-year-old immigrant male from Ghana preach seven minutes on that. We had a middle-aged white woman who teaches special education in the schools teach, preach seven minutes on that. And we had, who was it? Yvonne, a 30-year-old, 30-something-year-old Colombian immigrant educator preach seven minutes on that, on the parable of the tenants. And to hear that one parable preached from those three very different lenses, different gender, different race, different countries, different socioeconomic status, was amazing. It blew open the horizon on the depth and breadth of God in that parable than if it was just me preaching all 30 of the parables that we chose to do. Do you know? Okay, but that sounds great, but what about? Right? All these <laughs> concerns. And, and these are the ones I get emails about, I get questions about. I love this idea, but what if it's horrible? Like, what, what if they just preach a really bad sermon? If you're a preacher in here, raise your hand if you've ever preached a really bad sermon. Yeah. Your regular full time paid pulpit minister will preach a bad sermon too. That's going to happen. So it's inevitable either way. Uh, Judah, go ahead and, and, and flip it. But we do want to be, wait, not yet, go back one. We do want to be responsible with it. Um, 
we've all heard bad sermons in the substitute preaching category. We've heard people come up and, quote, preach a soapbox. We've heard church leaders come up and instead of really preaching a sermon, it's a summary of the latest self-help book they've read and they're passing it off as a sermon. Uh, I mean, you, you've heard it. You know what these things are. That's not what we want to happen. This isn't a free-for-all, hey, if you got a word, everybody just come up in the pulpit and do whatever you call a sermon. Because the rest of 1 Peter 4 that we looked at earlier says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received, we heard that, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, that includes your preacher, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. This needs to be done responsibly. There should be some deep uh, regard for the space. The person who, by the power of the Spirit, is bringing the word of God to the people of God. So Judah, go ahead. So at Courtyard, we do this through preaching workshops. No one preaches at Courtyard without having gone through two preaching training workshops. It's not meant to be top-down or micromanaging or heavy-handed. It's not, I got to preach what Tiffany says I got to preach. It's not that at all. Judah, go ahead and uh, flip for me. But there's two of them, and the first one is preparing for the sermon. Go ahead, Judah. And in that, we cover this is what a sermon is. A sermon is not a soapbox. A sermon is not your favorite things. A sermon isn't even a class. A sermon is deducing one big truth of God from one text and how it applies to the people. And there's two types of preaching. There's topical preaching and there's expository preaching. And the, the, the most top-down, heavy-handed, we get it, courtyard, is when I say you cannot preach a topical sermon in our open pulpit. That's probably the only rule that we have. And for those of you unfamiliar with the distinction, a topical sermon begins with a topic. Sometimes in a church, you have to preach a topical sermon. The church has a problem. We've got to preach money. We've got to preach gosh, baptism. We just went through that one, right? There's confusion about something. So it begins with a topic, and then the preacher goes where? To the text and finds from the text what they're going to preach beginning with the topic. The danger in that is that the preacher can make the text say whatever the preacher wants it to say. I can pull a verse here and a verse here and here and quilt them together to say whatever I want it to say, and that's the danger of topical preaching. But sometimes topical preaching is absolutely necessary when we have that. Maybe 10% of the time at Courtyard topical sermons are handled by the leadership team. Um, we study it together, we research it together, the draft of the sermon is talked about together, critiqued together, double-checked together, and then it gets preached. That is not entrusted to the people in the open pulpit. They preach expository sermons. Expository sermons don't begin with an idea, they begin where? With the text. So they choose their text, uh, we talk about how to shape a text, looking for those inclusios, finding the text itself. We talk about how to pray through it, formational practices in the text. 
Um, they mark it all up. I teach them how to do that. Where are the inclusios? Where's the recurrences? Where's their cause and effect? What are the transition words? What words stand out to you? What's meaningful to you? What makes you mad in this text? Just pray with it and sit with it for two weeks before you open up any commentaries. Just you and God with the text. Then I teach them how to find reliable sources to study the text informationally. Uh, not Wikipedia, not some random preacher, but you know how to find reliable and diverse sources. And their job at the end of that session, I give them about a month in between, but their job is to formulate a focus and a function statement. That's Tom Long language, witness of preaching. For those of you who don't know, we just keep it simple and go with Tom Long there. So they form a focus statement. This is the one truth of God I'm going to communicate from this text. One clear, solid sentence. And this, my function, is what I want the congregation to do with it. They bring that with them a month later to session number two. And a lot of that session is spent on fine-tuning that focus and function statement. Sometimes, very often, usually they're way, way, way too long. They've got five sermons in their one run-on sentence of what they want to talk about. Uh, that's, I think, the hardest part, especially for new preachers, is leaving all the rest on the floor. Only include that one truth of God you want to say. Leave the rest. Judah, go ahead. But once we have that, we talk about how to write the sermon and how to deliver the sermon. And hey, you know what? There's options. That preacher you think is terrible, really, they're just an inductive preacher, not a deductive preacher. It's a thing. It's a style. There's books written on it. This is what it is. They listen to Craddock. We talk about how to end the sermon. I did not originally have that in the training and realized quickly it's necessary. Uh, that's hard. It's hard to just end the sermon. We talk about that. And each congregation will have different guidelines. So at Courtyard, we say between 10 and 30 minutes is typical, uh, gender-inclusive language, know your audience. Half of our congregation is international from other countries. So watch your euphemisms and your, uh, your catchy little phrases. The families from Guyana may not have any idea what you're talking about. Uh, you know, think about these things. Citations, you absolutely cannot take your sermon off the internet. Not even parts of it. This needs to be originally composed by you. This is how you can handle a citation when you're delivering the sermon. You all, we cover all of that. And then at the end, if they so choose, the training does not obligate them. But if they choose, they sign up on the preaching rotation schedule to preach. Go ahead, Judah. But they don't come into the pulpit to preach that sermon until I see that sermon. Or I at least see the outline. I've seen the focus and function. And again, it's not I'm micromanaging it. I have never had a sermon come to my email where I had to say, no, you can't preach this. Not even, no, no, that this is terrible. It's more like, this is so amazing. This would be stronger if you added a story. Does this connect to your life in some way? Or, hey, this paragraph is really not tied to what you said the focus was. Would you like to keep it and I help you work it in? Or do you think we should get rid of it? Hey, this sermon's three and a half minutes long. Is there more you want to add to it? You know, these type of things. Some people don't request as much guidance, and some people want me to meet them at the church, 
while they practice preach it three, four, five times because they're nervous about it. And I'm there doing all of that. I have put in hours training. I've put in hours on the second training. I've put in hours encouraging. I've put in hours reading over these sermons in the church with them. There's follow-up afterward. Hey, how do we do? Before they preach their sermon, I am laying hands on them with the other leaders to bless that word that's coming through them. I'm still doing stuff. You still need your pulpit minister. But the congregation gets the benefit of hearing from a multitude of voices. Go ahead, Jim. Other concerns sometimes people have. Well, we hired a preacher to do this. As I just said, you did. And your preacher is busy doing a lot of things also besides preaching, usually, especially at a Pepperdine conference. Preachers are also pastoring a lot of ways, too. They're doing the hospital visits. They're doing uh, premarital counseling. They're doing crisis counseling. They are vacuuming the floor like I'm doing sometimes at a church and smaller churches is what we're doing. We're doing a lot of other things besides just filling the pulpit, but even to have this type of culture run smoothly requires hours and requires work and support. So you did hire your preacher and they are doing something and keep them around, you need them. I also still preach probably once a month, sometimes a little bit less this particular series. I'm not preaching much at all because so many wanted to do a parable, but we're gonna do a wisdom series next and I'll probably preach eight of those 12 in a row. So. You're still preaching, you're just not doing it every week. Go ahead, Judah. What if we have visitors that day? Get this one. Ah, what do we do? That is a great opportunity. And we have never had visitors be upset about this, at least not that they've said. Because what happens is, uh, you probably have someone do your call to worship or whatever you call it in your church, whether it's a preacher or an elder or, or someone, but you look out, you see if there's visitors, and Judah, go ahead. You get to say, we're so glad you're here today that you get to experience our open pulpit culture, this radical hospitality this church believes in for the word of God. And we cannot wait to hear Susie Jane's very first sermon to hear what God has to say through her and to encourage her and we're so glad you get to be a part of it too as church leaders you set the narrative you set the anxiety and you can do that in a way that brings excitement even into your visitors and you never know the sermon could be a lot better than what the salaried pulpit preacher might preach that week anyway it happens absolutely happens um before you go on Judah, we, and sometimes I even explain this in the church, but there has been a history. I don't know how it began. Maybe an expectation is the better word. That when we're using gifts in the church, they need to have been identified and nurtured and perfected outside of the church first. If you think you have the gift for preaching, well, have somebody affirm that. Maybe your parents affirm that. Your grandparents affirmed that. Go get into Toastmasters. Go join forensics in high school. Become a teacher. Give some presentations at the office. And once your gift of speaking has reached a certain level, now you can come behind the almighty pulpit and deliver a sermon to the people of God. 
great. And we do this with singing too. You think you have a gift of song? Well, great. Join choir in high school and take vocal lessons. And once you become this great singer, now you can become our worship leader. We threw that out at Courtyard and flipped it around and said, if there's anywhere on the planet where you should feel safe and edified and encouraged to identify and nurture and perfect a gift, it's in this family space. So if you think you have the gift of preaching, identify it here. Nurture it here and allow the Spirit of God to perfect it here among your family, whether it's song, whatever the gift is. So then when you go out in the world, you're shining this radiant, bright light for Christ. So if it's not perfect, who cares? That's the point. That, that's part of the point is for the family to nurture these gifts together, to receive them and, and to hear that it's the Spirit of God speaking to that person. Um, Judah, go ahead. What if they preach it better than I do? The preacher is asking this question. If that is really your concern, you need to think about a sabbatical. I mean, really. Your, your heart's gotten askewed, right? Judah, go ahead. Um, and time in the pulpit takes a toll. And the, even conferences like this, right? There's a lot of unnecessary, unholy competition in these types of spaces. If your concern is they might preach better than I do, take a time out, talk to your leadership, evaluate what's going on. Go ahead, Judah. If that's your concern as an elder or a church leader, hallelujah for the spirit, right? Look what the spirit of God is doing in your church that could work through this vessel that's unexpected, that nobody expected. And how can we partner with that even more in this congregation to be a part of all that the Spirit can do among us? And give your hired vocational pulpit minister some grace. Uh, when you're doing that week after week after week uh, to, to craft an original, sound, heartfelt sermon, Honestly, it takes more than a week. If I have a doctorate in preaching, and those sermons for class, I'll spend three months on one of those. To put those out every week, I mean, your, your pulpit minister is going to deliver some off, just not great sermons. It's inevitable, especially when they're doing other things we need them to do. They're in the hospital with the sick people. They're up all night handling other crises. There, I'm teaching the Sunday morning adult class too. We have a book club on Wednesday night. I mean, there's all this other stuff going on, right? Judah, go ahead. Oh, go back, go back, go, on, go back, go back. Sorry. So what I want us to, to do here at the end um, is to listen in to an example of this happening. Um, I took a sermon from that parable series that we had heard lately, the one on the... Uh, the twin parables on the cost of discipleship is what they were. And this young woman signed up to preach those. Never preached before in her life. And this is a young woman whose voice is largely ignored in the world. She's African-American. She's younger. She's neurodiverse. Socially but awkward. Never, nobody in the church thought, hey, one of the voices preaching one of these parables is going to be this young woman. But she came to me and said, I want to do this. I think 
I, I read these parables and there's a sermon in this one that I feel like I need to preach. And that's what you want. That person's one heart sermon, I mean, if you can get 20 of those in your church, holy cow, that's what you want, right? So we worked on it and we worked on it. And I want to show you just like five minutes of excerpts of that sermon. There was not a dry eye in the church when this was over. It was absolutely incredible. But I want you, you to hear what kind of this is, this is like. Uh, Judah, turn it up. It's, So, family, let me tell you about my experiences with some members in the body of Christ. Years ago, anyone who told me to work knows the phrase, then I will live in a cardboard box. For the uninitiated, it's a phrase I constantly told those who would tell me that I have to sacrifice more, if not most things, my dignity to be one of them, to live in a survivable position if you don't do X. Insert impossible words up here. You'll live on the street. My answer shortly was, I'll live in a cardboard box. This illusion from the idea that my college degree was going to get me a living wage job, I felt hurt, discouraged, and distressed. I did everything I could to get into careers, make connections, apply for jobs, start at the bottom, had a job while looking for a job, but as the years started adding up, I became too old for work programs, or jobs for a recent college graduates. Or the infamous, I don't have enough work experience for that position. I guarantee you that whatever you can recommend, I've done it. Sorry. About there, I stood up on the side, so she was not standing by herself in front of the people. How to get a job was not the same for everyone. And getting a job was not the same as it was for my parents. I went to food pantries and other churches and was told I shouldn't be there because I was able-bodied and that I should be working for my food. But, and that's funny because in Matthew chapter 25, verses 35, Jesus said, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and he invited me in. The servants in the food pantries were trying to carry my cross without carrying their own, without sitting down with me, to care about how I got there. Part of carrying the cross is sitting down. If we are one body, traveling to the cross together, and I came in to ask for food, you should give me food. Perhaps later it's appropriate to talk to me about my situation, what I need, how you could help, etc. But if we're family, it isn't ever appropriate to come out with certain one. You should be working. Family knows each other and edifies. Everyone has their own cross to bear. Bills is probably big and heavy. 
sermon, nobody would have heard it. Not like they heard it through her. And it was raw and weepy and stumbly and she dropped her paper at one point and who cares? That was a sermon the church needed to hear through that person. And as the pulpit minister, I spent about 15 hours with her from beginning to end, which is about what I would spend on a sermon anyway. So that's why open pulpits are a beautiful thing. Changing the culture into a radical hospitality of the space for the word of God. We have about five minutes. If you have any questions, I'll do my best to answer them. 
I just, to your point um, about changing it up, sometimes we get the best lessons when our preacher's on vacation. <laughs> and it's okay to admit that. You know, because somebody else is doing the class that didn't normally do it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, ref it's a refreshing for the members too. Mm -hmm. Not just the, you know, minister. He needs a break too. Right. Right, and, and I encourage you to go and tell your church leaders about that and, and qualify. We're not saying get rid of the preacher. There's a lot they can do. But hearing other voices is so beneficial to the people in the pews. Mm. Any other questions about logistics or purpose? What is homolytics? Homolytics is just a fancy is. word for preaching, the is study oh, of preaching, okay. yes. I don't really have a question. I just wanted to say thank you for doing this. I'm the associate minister in my church, and I was the youth minister and have grown into the role. We have an eight-man preaching team, so kind of the opposite. Instead of, like, from the pulpit to kind of less of a role, it's we've had this eight-man preaching team for two years, and we've had a search committee for a preacher, but it's kind of everything you've said has happened, and everyone's kind of, like, grown, almost like stand-up comedy or something. You have to mm -hmm. practice it in front of people enough times no matter how much you do it in the mirror. So I just, this is cool. Yeah, yeah, and it can, I don't know, probably a larger congregation. We have about 200 members. Not oh, okay, it can become, um, let, me, let me rephrase that. I have seen in church leaderships that don't necessarily understand the moves of liturgy that happen in a church like preaching, an expectation that it's about performance an expectation that preaching is about delivery and, and the person themselves rather than the spirit of God speaking through the person. Uh, things do get better with practice and delivery matters and all of that, but yeah, where's the spirit of God in that? I mean, I think you saw that here. Yeah, for sure. That this wasn't what we would expect, you know, as a master preacher. But it was the truth of God to the people, and that's just as beautiful and needed and good. It's nice to be in a space where, like, my son can lead songs while he's still learning those types of things. And this son can do AV before he gets his degree in AV stuff. I also think it's very. Um, when we have visitors come, and our church seems to attract people that have some trauma, church trauma in their background, mm -hmm. that it's not such a perfect, you know, they're not coming into this thing where perfectionism is, it's very, it's a lot more welcoming for, mm -hmm. for visitors, I think. I think so, too. It's almost a, an exhale of knowing, hey, if the preacher can stumble over words or lose their place, then maybe I don't have to be perfect to be here either. Yeah. It creates a culture of hospitality beyond the pulpit into the church. Anything else? Well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you for Thank coming you. in today.